Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. That's the station you're on. My name is Andy and I will be with you for the next hour, as we always do, talking about the most important news and current affairs for those trying to make a change in this world. And I am coming to you this week from Noongar country, the southwest of Australia, um, but of course acknowledging traditional owners everywhere. And today on the show, I am going to be talking about uh, coal mining regions and how we can bring them into the conversation on climate change. I think it's very topical, it always is, um, but particularly in the light of the recent election, which so many saw as a climate election and the big wins in the inner city for Teal Independents, who wanted more climate action, and the Greens, of course, in Brisbane. And, um, you know, there was a lot of celebration about this, but if you looked at the regional electorates, actually most of them... Uh, stayed the same or actually swung to the right um, as they certainly weren't voting for climate action in places like central Queensland um, or eastern Victoria which we will be covering a little bit today. Labor did manage to hold on to some of the seats in the Hunter Valley that they'd been very worried about losing Um, but it is a big conversation because Anthony Albanese, in his victory speech, said this is the end of the climate wars. I'm really not so sure about that. Um, The Murdoch media hasn't changed, and the opposition already, there's uh, hints that they might take a bit more combative stance on some of the uh, cost-of-living things, trying to attack some of the social issues that Labor might um, do and push a more self-interested world, I guess, as a response to... Um, their losses in this election. I think we could be in for another electoral term of some debates about climate change, but we don't have to be, and we shouldn't be, because climate change affects us all. Um, It's a great existential crisis, and it is uh, a powerful opportunity for us all to be a part of talking about what kind of world do we want, how do we make a world that is sustainable and that is uh, enabling of human flourishing, and if there's going to be big changes and there's opportunity for people to be in it, but of course the situation we have is one where people have been told that change is something to fear, and especially in regions that are uh, economically dependent on mining. Um, I grew up in a mining town in 
central west New South Wales. Um, I've spent a lot of the last few years uh, in other mining towns trying to encourage them to not build new coal mines, particularly up in uh, central Queensland where the Adani mine is being built. And I'm under no illusions about how hard a task this is to engage these regions in um, these kind of conversations. But it's so important because otherwise, ultimately, uh, these regions may be the losers when this change happens because big business around the world is pushing for these changes, but also because of just the realities of living on a fragile planet that is affected by the damage that we do to it with all our uh, carbon emissions. So anyway, that's what we're going to talk about. I've got three interviews. One is with Grant Howard, who lives up in Mackay and worked for many decades as a coal miner. Um, and now he is a climate activist and he's trying to bring coal miners into the conversations. The second interview is with the makers of the Coalface podcast, uh, Steph and Ellie. They are based in Morwell in Gippsland in Victoria, uh, of course, a place where they both mine coal and they have had a number of coal-fired power stations running there. And they on their podcast are trying to talk about what a different future might look like for that region. And finally, I speak to Kim Newen, who made a film uh, in Claremont and Collinsville, two mining towns in central Queensland, where he went and talked to coal miners about what they think about climate change. So that is what's coming up. Stick around um, and let's start off with my interview with Grant Howard. Yeah, my name's Grant Howard and I'm from Mackay. Now, Grant, you have worked for a long time, nearly four decades, in the coal mining industry, but you've now gained a bit of a name for yourself as somebody, a climate change activist. Can you tell us a bit about how that transition happened? Yeah, well, basically, I, um, you know, I learned about climate change or the greenhouse effect at school. That was 40 years ago. I, I left school, went and worked in the coal industry, which is where I got a job. And then, you know, here we are, sort of three, four decades later, I learn on television that the uh, global average level of carbon dioxide was approaching 420 parts per million. And at that point, it was quite crystallising. I, you know, I was annoyed. I was angry. I didn't understand why I wasn't aware of this situation where we were accumulating carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that led to a, a bit of a change. What happened... After that, how did you become a sort of a, a prominent public activist for climate activism? Yeah, well, I, um, you know, I watched television and I saw through the media people taking action in Brisbane. And, you know, in my sort of um, angst or anxiety about this issue, I, I wanted to do something. So I wasn't sure what to do, how to do it. Um, but looking at those other activists and protests that I just felt and knew that I wanted to be a part of that and be a part of the solution not be a part of the problem so I wasn't sure of the pathway about how to join those people but I ended up going to a local conservation group and from there I ended up being a climate activist. How did that go down with your workplace workmates etc? Yeah what didn't go down well at all and you know I approached the whole thing with a fair bit of trepidation going to work was an anxious thing you know I was afraid of you know, how they would perceive my actions. I'd sort of reconciled everything. I recognised we needed to transition. 
Um, there's nothing more important than looking after our environment, our atmosphere at the end of the day. So, um, you know, I sort of reconcile all that. But, yeah, of course, my um, my work colleagues, my peers, the guys I've worked with for a long time didn't understand that. They only knew those sort of short sort of things off social media or the news and sort of classified me or us as greenies and wrote us off at that and that's about as far as they sort of think of things. You've mentioned the social media and the media I guess pushing these kind of uh, climate denialist lines or uh, simplistic ideas about you know soy latte drinking greenies wanting to take away coal mining jobs. Is that something that is common amongst the mining industry? Yeah, you know, like at the time, you know, I've been a climate activist for now for sort of two and a half years and yeah, sure, like even now today, um, they, you know, coal miners still think of things in simplistic terms, you know, they've, they've got no information and part of my involvement was to try and get them involved in the conversation, not to, um, you know, sort of disregard or be flippant about it, but, you know, basically get involved and think about their future and their kids' future. So you stayed working at the mines for a while. You're now no longer working there. How did that um, go, both staying there and then eventually how did you stop working there? Mm. Yeah, look, for all of that time, you know, it was, it was an anxious thing for me to go to work and, and you know, my actions be misconstrued or, um, you know, at the end of the day, I was, I was concerned, I was worried about that, how people thought about me and, and need their reaction, you know, and, and certainly there were some confrontational moments. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I had to try and reconcile things for myself and a person does that by having conversations with people to try and work things out better in their own head and with their colleagues and, um, you know, a lot of the co- some colleagues were supportive, some colleagues suggested that the government had to fix this up. Other people wanted to know why, who, who was I to have such an opinion? And, um, and so we, you know, we had those conversations and uh, other sort of more angry or hostile occasions, we sort of uh, debated those things as well. So um, in my mind, you know, look, I, I wasn't there to cause trouble, so I actually offered to resign. Um, and that was about sort of 18 months ago. And my employer um, actually said that, that oh, they were okay with my position. Um, Anglo-American, who I work for, have an anthropogenic climate change policy. So, in fact, I was working uh, well within or to, in accord with their actual policy. So all those other things have been called a hypocrite and, and all these other things really um, really just didn't fit the picture of what, where I was. But you're not working in the industry now? Mm. Yeah, so in around about September last year, I got a phone call saying that... Um, you know, I was no longer required after 38, 39 years. You know, it's a fairly um, crystallising moment, you know. Um, sort of coal mining formed a large part of my life and, you know, it, that changes. And in that, you've sort of got to intelligently work about another way to underpin your self-esteem, who you are, what you're about. And so in a way, I was relieved that, you know, it was sort of over. I haven't looked for other work in the coal industry um, so I'm sort of looking forward now to uh, being more involved in, in climate activism and ra- raising awareness and, and, and ideally, you know, coal miners get involved in that conversation. Often, you know, the 
honest jobs of working class mums and dads is sort of used as this rhetorical device when talking about the need to keep the mining industry going and keep the government keep supporting it and things like that. But then it's interesting, you know, that you were just retrenched over a phone call. Um, do you think that miners are kind of the the pawns sometimes in the the sort of media games of big business and government? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's what part of my issue was. You know, I looked at the guys working. They're honest, hardworking people. They're, they're family people. So on any other day, you know, they're, they're great all-round nice guys. They're, they're great companions that, to have at work. Um, so I don't criticise mine workers at all. In fact, what I saw when I analysed the whole picture was that politicians were indeed injecting this simplic- simplistic message to get coal miners to react um, politicians were using coal miners for their own political ends and that to me as an older person, an older mine worker, um, I was particularly disappointed and took exception to that. Um, you know, there are young mine workers there, they're worried about their job, they're, they're, wanted, they're worried about their family and for politicians to behave like that is, to me, I, I, I can't articulate how disappointed I am about that. Mm. And we saw things like when the Bob Brown convoy came up, this really antagonistic sentiment um, whipped up against them in your part of the world, in Mackay. You know, where did that come from? Was that from the miners themselves, or do you feel like that comes from an external source? Oh, that was clearly from an external course. course, You know, Matt Canavan, Clive Palmer, um, you know, all those kind of guys um, were basically uh, whipping up all that ridiculous diatribe about, you know, um, activists want to take their jobs. And that's all they had to say. And, and in the absence of any other good information, coal miners, like any human being who is concerned about their circumstances, you know, react. And um, and that's what caused that situation. I'm particularly disappointed about it, by it. I personally went to see Bob Brown in Mackay. You know, I really appreciate what Bob's done for us, the whole country in terms of his efforts in Tasmania and the Franklin and it was a great opportunity for me that, to meet that guy in person in Mackay. They then subsequently went out to Claremont, which is where that altercation took place. Um, and, you know, when I heard that, that coal miners were behaving like that, that coal miners were being used by politicians, I, um, you know, that just crystallised or um, was just another catalyst for me to continue down that track of trying to build a platform for coal miners to get better information and get involved in the conversation rather than reacting to it. You've made an interesting point before in that these days um, the mining industry is so linked to the National Party, people like George Christensen, Matt Canavan or John Anderson before then, um, and also such a often a, a kind of force of social conservatism against these like greeny protesters. But the coal mining industry has been very radical in the past, you know, with the CFMEU or mining unions before that... Um, What's happened to that history? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. You know, what has happened? You know, at the end of the day, the if I sit back and look at it, you know, I, I got started in the industry and, and coal miners were quite, um, you know, they, were, they we, we were on a strike. We had these amazing sort of foundation principles that we stuck to and that was that, that gave us amazing working conditions and, and safety conditions. So, um, you know, what happened, you know, and, and at the end of the day, the, the, the Liberal Party deregulated the, the mining industry. Um, the industry was in a, a pretty bad state in the 80s and 90s, and they used that opportunity basically to, um, you know, to, to debase the union and, and mine workers generally and 
create these anxious sort of transient employment conditions and you know and that's just gone too far and, and global resource companies recognize that and that pendulum swinging back this way but at the end of the day you know they created this deregulated market um, and so hence we have this position where mine workers um, basically feel insecure in their employment. And they are somewhat insecure. It's an industry in great flux depending on, you know, demand from overseas. We've seen China in recent years kind of use Australia's coal exports as this kind of uh, diplomatic game, you know, and that puts the whole industry at risk. Do you think there needs to be more done to, you know, make what we would call a just transition for mining workers, not just because of climate change but because of any you know, changes to that industry where they are quite precarious. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, any anything like that is always um, productive for, for workers generally. And, and at the moment, you know, it's ridiculous to have politicians in place telling mine workers that this is just going to go on and on forever. You know, at the end of the day, coal mining was always a precarious employment place. You know, uh, it's it's just crazy that politicians aren't giving mine workers the truth, not sort of telling them the circumstances or reinforcing the circumstances, and that is that, you know, their jobs, our jobs, are directly related to the demand for coal, and that's changing. And that change is going to... And, you know, the other frustrating part is they politicians never mention time frames. And so this transition, you know, could take place over five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years perhaps, um, depending on the type of coal that the guys are involved in. And so politicians never, ever sort of um, open that discussion up. They basically threaten mine workers or, or, or mine workers feel like they're in a threatened position. And that's, that's just ridiculous. You know, at the end of the day, um, whether or not our coal is sold or not is, is actually the, the circumstance by where that, that backs or underpins their employment. So definitely, um, you know, mine workers should be open to a, a plan B. You know, I always had a plan B. And certainly, um, you know, my son's still in the industry and we talk about that. We talk about having a plan B or a plan C, whatever, you know, for, for whatever contingency um, sort of happens. Do you think that, say, the unions, um, CFMEU, could be doing more towards uh, a good transition and climate justice as well, which ultimately affects everybody? Absolutely. You know, the union, the CFMEU, could be just simply honest with its members. And, you know, there's never been an emphatic statement about climate change, the causes and the consequences from the Prime Minister of this country or from the unions. And, you know, just by simply offering that, um, that sort of fundamental knowledge allows people to digest that. And then, of course, um, you know, I'm sort of confident mine workers will make good decisions for themselves if they've got good information. Certainly that's where the CFMEU uh, could play a part. I know other unions around Australia have accepted the challenge of a transition, even in the Hunter Valley, where it's a coal mining community. Um, but certainly in Mackay, you know, the union could do a bit more, I think, in terms of being honest and straightforward and recognising, that, in fact, that there is a transition in place, putting some timelines around it and simply stating the facts so mine workers um, you know, could make some good decisions for themselves. So you've been on both sides, Grant, of the greenies and the miners. What are some things that you think could happen that could resolve the kind of uh, conflict over mine jobs and make everybody be able to see each other's points of view a bit better? 
Oh, the first thing, first things first, you know, politicians have got to be straight, you know, and, you know, that's a big ask perhaps, but at the end of the day, that's, this is really where the, the, the guts of the problem is, that politicians are simply being de deceiving and being misleading. So that's a big thing, you know, politicians could give us a plan um, about a transition. Um, you know, the state governments and state and, and local councils have, are, have already declared a climate emergency, a lot of those, and are responding accordingly. And so um, it's really a, a, the places for the federal government to step up and, um, and do that, just declare a climate emergency. And of course, um, the obvious things are we do not need any new thermal coal mines. Any new coal mines, you know, there's 20 to 25 coal mines already operating. They, are, they produce metallurgical coal. Some of those are thermal coal, but at the end of the day, um, that adequately services any uh, demand for coal there is. The idea of opening up new coal mines is ridiculous. All right, thanks, Grant. On the paradigm shift, we were talking with Grant Howard, who lives up in Mackay. He worked for many decades as a coal miner, and now he's trying to help bring coal miners into the conversation about climate transition. Now, another coal mining area, a bit further from where we are here at Z. Uh, is down in Victoria in the Latrobe Valley and it's seen its fair share of issues with climate transition um, with the boom and bust industry with the giant fire and the coal face of the Hazelwood coal mine and all kinds of things and a couple of locals from the Latrobe Valley have started a new podcast called Coal Face which is uh, an attempt to get local people in Morwell and the surrounding areas in Gippsland there um, to talk about the future of that area and what that would look like in a greener way and so I spoke to Josie and Steph from the Coal Face podcast to hear about what they're doing um, let's have a listen so I'm Josie Hess and I'm a documentarian living on Gunaikurnai land here in Gippsland. And I'm Stephanie Sabrinskis and I am a podcaster, filmmaker and musician living on Gunaikurnai land in the Latrobe Valley. And one of the reasons I've got you on the show is that the Latrobe Valley is well known as a coal a mining area, coal energy producing area. It is the main thing it's well known for. And you guys being based there have made a podcast called Coal Face. It's about climate adaptation, climate issues, and from a standpoint of a, a coal community. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, through our podcast Coal Face, we're trying to explore some of the main issues for the Latrobe Valley in rehabilitating from a coal economy. And we're doing that by telling um, people's unique stories from the Latrobe Valley. Yeah, and we're also trying to look at, um, outside of the issues that the town is facing specifically, how to reimagine a new identity. So each episode we try to look at something hopeful or future-oriented about what could happen next instead. Do you think there was a need for um, media like this or kind of storytelling like this? Yeah, so I, I really do think there was a need. So I am doing my master's in journalism at the moment and 
uh, a group of my fellow students who are all based at Melbourne Uni came down to this area um, and told the stories. And while the reporting was really good, it really did sort of have that sort of outsider perspective. And Steph and I are both uh, locals and we've been living down and we're sort of born and raised down here. So I think we kind of felt like I had already been talking about for years the need for sort of like a community oriented sort of reporting. And so we sort of stepped in to fill that gap really with a strong emphasis on telling Morwell's story from a Morwell perspective. How has it been received within the Latrobe Valley area? Oh, we've had really um, positive feedback so far. Um, so, yeah, people have pretty much anyone we've asked has agreed to be on it and people like it. And yeah, Come on, Steph. we're basically celebrities now. <laughs> celebrities. No, yeah. of course not. Yeah. We've released three episodes. And like you're saying, I think it's been extremely positive because of that need. Like I think a lot of people down here hear these stories in bits and pieces. They'll hear it through maybe the local paper, maybe a little bit on the radio, but it's all very, um, I guess, segmented. And so to have a, a whole podcast that's really just focused on this specific issue, I think is helping sort of, I don't know, cement that story for a lot of us down here. And I think our whole point is like, we want people to learn with us, like come on this journey of, hey, we've got this huge problem. How are we going to fix it? Um, and the whole point is sort of bringing people along together. Yeah, so we're doing like an accessible retail format, which I think is really good. So you can have absolutely no understanding of coal or no understanding of the issues and still get um, get something out of each episode. Yeah. Do you think it makes a difference, the fact that you are locals, um, when people are talking to you or interacting with it or listening to it, compared to, I guess, people from the city? Is that divide something that's present in the Latrobe area? Yeah, I think the area has kind of often been presented with maybe a poverty porn lens or even when it's not that egregious, it'll be presented sort of, you know, just from an outside perspective. And I guess um, a lot of the people we've spoken with have sort of communicated that, um, you know, we're kind of sick of people from the city who don't have to live here coming down here to tell us how we should live. And so we're quite interested in giving this area that's really long since been silenced um, and sort of just an area to have resources taken from, uh, have, have a voice. So yeah, I think definitely it's made a difference. And what kind of topics have you covered on the shows so far? So our first episode, we spoke to the acting CEO of the Mineland Rehabilitation Authority, Rhonda Hasty, about the current plans for rehabilitation of the coal mines. Um, our second episode, we spoke to Wendy Farmer, uh, from Voices of the Latrobe Valley about the Hazelwood mine fire that happened in 2016 and some of the um, things that have changed in the community since then. And for our third episode, we spoke to um, someone called Dan Musel of the Earthworker Energy Co-op about what cooperative energy could look like and what it could mean for climate change and climate futures. And what about episode four, oh, which we're about to drop? Episode four, <laughs> um, which we're recording right after this interview, actually. And um, we're talking to Hayley Shostokas of Friends of Latrobe Valley Water about some of the problems with the proposal to turn the mines into pit lakes and what that would mean for our local water table. Uh, so I wanted to ask about the situation in, in Gippsland, the Latrobe Valley, um, when it comes to talking about climate change adaptation, things like that. Let's start with the recent election, which so many people have talked about as a climate election. The inner cities obviously voted teal uh, or green, but um, the Gippsland electorate did actually swing to the right to the nationals and a lot of other 
regional uh, mining areas were the same. They swung to the nationals or remained the same. I mean, what was the feeling about the election in the Gippsland area? Um, so, look, historically, the Greens or even independents haven't done very well in our area. I think we've been under or the Liberals or Nationals yeah. yeah, for around 20 years. So I wasn't expecting um, a big change there. But um, from having seen um, the stats on who voted Liberal and like the percentages, the percentages are up um, for Greens and independents. So that was promising, I think. And I guess in terms of the attitude, I mean, like Steph's saying, it's been such a long held seat and we, I guess we're quite, there's a lot of social conservatism down here, even outside of people who are concerned about climate change. So I do think that's probably a pretty strong factor in that result. Yeah. And I know in the Monash electorate, um, the Liberals got the top vote and second was a One Nation member, but third was (laughs) actually um, the Greens member, which is pretty cool. So. I mean, the situation there at Morwell is interesting compared to the rest of the country in, you know, mining communities and things because the Hazelwood mines closed, the power stations closed. In some ways, a bit ahead of the curve um, of other communities in sort of facing the realities of transition and um, and what, you know, climate transition means for these communities. Uh, what has that journey been like for your hometown? I guess I, we're very much in a state of flux. So when Steph and I left in the you know early 2000s, it was an area in decline. It was post SEC. The you know it was an area of recession. Um, I think that sort of the environment that we left in. When we came back in the later 2010s, um, I think again Hazelwood had closed. We have have two other power stations that are scheduled for closure in the next. Um, you know, decade or so. So there's still a lot of transition to go. So I think the journey is very much in the middle. So it's very hard at this point to say, you know, sort of the the narrative of it. But I guess, you know, any transition is going to have, I guess, a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions, a lot of change. Like it's it's tumultuous, honestly. Yeah, it is. And I think the the major concern of people down here at the moment is that we don't have the clear roadmap of what's going to happen happen they still haven't decided the best way to rehab the mines or the best time to close down the power stations or you know if we're going to become a renewable hub or like a water attraction so (laughs) yeah who are we is very much still um yeah still a sense of debate and every other week there's like um community talks being held to try and discuss these um, matters and hopefully with the results of the latest election maybe things will get moving a bit faster for us yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that question because, you know, when a lot of the time when we talk about um, climate transition, it's about the environment or for regions like this where it's like, well, what industries can replace these carbon-heavy industries? It's about economics. But there's also these harder-to-pin-down questions about identity, isn't there, that are very much tied up in this debate. Absolutely. I mean, our boy Dan Musil just last episode was like, the valley is so much more than coal. And we completely agree. But I think we're still I mean, even you introduced us as like we're from that coal area. And like, there's this pervasive idea that we are just coal, when obviously already we're so much more than that. And every coal community is so much more than that. So we're really interested in exploring cultural shift and how to change minds and thinking, um, which then I think the follow on from that is changing behavior. What kind of suggestions have been put forward um, by the community and what's the vibe of the community in like a, a post-coal more well? 
Um, so I think that the community has been consulted a little bit along the way of like what we want rehabilitation to be. And it's very select part of the community. But yeah, yeah. It, that it, it is very select part of the community. Um, I think at the moment there's we're kind of being told that the only option is to turn um, at least Hazelwood Mine into a pit lake because of the aquifers and everything being destabilized, that they need to be stabilized with water. And also um, that is what the mine operators are willing to pay for at this point. So though we've kind of been asked, we haven't really been given clear other options. So that's what the push is for at the moment. Um, but yeah, I think that in the coming months, there will definitely be more discussion and hopefully we'll see some other options laid on the table. Well, I personally hope that we can turn into a renewable um, energy hub uh, because we are, you know, we're plugged into the grid. We've got the infrastructure for that, though we're not the ideal um, climate for um, wind farms and for solar farms. It would still work. And yeah, I think that would provide a future work and it would help provide um, yeah, us with clean energy and for the state of Victoria to have more clean energy as well. Yeah, I agree. I think the realist in me is like, let's go sustainable power hub. Mm -hmm. And then the fun person in me is like roller coaster. I want to <laughs> see like a hands down crazy roller coaster in that hole. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> the cola coaster. The cola coaster, <laughs> yes. Hey, well, thanks very much for coming on the Paradigm Shift. Do you want to give a final plug for your podcast? Yes. Okay. So if you want to hear more of our enjoyable uh, romp through all things coal <laughs> in the Latrobe Valley, then find us at coalfacepodcast.com or on Instagram at coalfacepod. And we do pay, post excellent stories all the time if you like your feed to be filled with good pictures of like coal memes. Yes. And us. <laughs> thanks, Andy. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, heaps. On the paradigm shift, that was Steph and Josie there from the Coalface podcast. They have been trying to bring out stories in the Latrobe Valley region uh, beyond coal for that place. And that is what we're talking about on the show. I've got one final interview, which is with Kim Newen. And Kim made a film recently called Conversations with Coal Miners, where he went up to uh, coal mining country in Queensland, in Claremont and Collinsville, and he spoke to a few miners there about what they thought about climate change, about the future of their industry. Uh, it's quite an interesting result. It's half an hour long and you can watch it on the internet. Um, but let's have a chat to Kim and find out more about it. Yeah, hi, I'm Kim Paul Newen. I'm I guess a uh, filmmaker, sometime journalist, sometime activist. And the film that I'm interested in talking to you about today on the show is Conversations with Coal Miners. Um, we are talking about, I guess, bridging the gap between the city climate change activists and the communities that depend on coal economically. And that is literally what you've tried to do in this film. Can you tell us a bit about the film? Yeah, so in like the middle of last year, uh, 2021, um, I went up to Claremont and Collinsville, which are basically the two towns on either side of the Adani Carmichael coal mine, um, to try to talk to the people that worked there to find out what they thought about climate change and then in a solution-focused way to try to find out if there was ways that um, climate activists and those local coal miners might be able to work together to come up with solutions for their towns that would, um, I guess, help them 
transition away from coal and in that way help the country transition away from coal. And so what did you find when you spoke to these coal miners? I guess uh, a few different things. So first of all, most of the people I met started off being very defensive. They were aware that um, they were kind of thought of in negative terms in lots of other parts of the country and then they seemed to kind of have their back up um, in response to that, that everyone would ask me when I first met them if I was making a pro or anti-coal film and were, you know, very suspicious of anyone that they thought might be making, you know, coming from an anti-coal background. So I ended up, I wouldn't say like that I misrepresented myself, but I ended up not um, going into kind of my background in climate activism, um, which, uh, yeah, allowed me to... I guess be um, taken as a, I don't know, apolitical or objective um, person in the communities. And that meant that lots of the coal miners kind of opened up to me in a way that maybe they wouldn't have if I had told them about my background in climate activism. Um, anyway, then uh, I had lots of conversations where the people that I spoke to were really kind of happy to and seemed to really appreciate having someone be interested in their life story um, and so they would talk about how they got into coal mining what their experience was with coal mining that allowed them to talk about all of their problems that they'd had with coal mining whether it be health problems or economic problems because the industry um, is clearly such a boom and bust industry so most of the people i'd spoken to had lost their jobs many times and kind of been like fired and rehired and fired and rehired and um, the sort of glory days of when it was common to have a permanent coal mining job were long gone, are long gone. Um, and then by spending all that time kind of talking to them about their lives, then it was much easier than to talk to them about climate change. And um, there was like a, an array of views, um, but most of them at the start certainly were like, yeah, we think climate change is a scam. We don't think that it's that it's true or we don't think it's having an impact. But as I kind of talked to them for longer and tried to inquire as to why they thought it was a scam, where they got their information from, then a lot of them would, I guess, start to kind of question where they were coming from and be, you know, uh, I would see them be kind of more open to um, maybe that climate change was real. Um, and so over the couple of weeks that I was up there, I saw quite a lot of like change in the way that um, different people that I was speaking to spoke about climate change. At the end of my time up there, a lot of the people that I met were keen to sit down with other people who maybe don't um, come from the same political background as they come from. So climate activists in this, in this situation to talk about what potential solutions you know, people could work on together because Everyone that I spoke to recognised that the towns were on the way down, that they were losing um, residents, that they were losing services, that it didn't look like there was a br bright future for these places. And so they wanted to talk with anyone who was like interested in the future of their towns who might be able to help. The interesting kind of part at the end of all of that is that, um, yeah, when the film came out, is that um, different people who've watched the film then have, have given some of the people who are in the film a hard time for being in the film. And, and so I guess um, that's uh, a real pity because, um, yeah, I guess it just highlights how polarised the issue is up there that um, even these guys having talked to me, 
they're now kind of yeah, given a hard time for having talked to me because some people perceive the film as being like an anti-coal film, whereas I kind of perceive it as one which is about trying to find ways to work together. Yeah, I thought it was quite a sympathetic portrayal of the coal miners themselves and that um, maybe your your film was trying to uh, spread a bit of empathy, I guess, within a, you know, in a city climate conscious circles about what it's like living in these uh, coal miner communities. I mean, what was the message that you were hoping came across from the film? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, you're absolutely right. A big part of what I was trying to do was to encourage people who have a similar background to me. So, you know, from the cities, from, I guess, more kind of left-wing climate activist sort of backgrounds to to understand where people that work in the coal industry come from so to better be able to try to work with them. Um, my motivation to make the film had come from um, having gone up and having done some work in the area and having just been involved in climate um, activism for nearly 15 years now and really not seeing um, that much um, examples of climate activists working with coal miners or um, or people who work in the fossil fuel industry to kind of help them transition from those industries and um, the longer that I worked in the climate movement the more apparent it came to me that that was a big blockage in change happening um, and that kind of polarization of politics was a big blockage in seeing change happen and so I think uh, that's why I made the film um, and I still think that uh, it's really important to reach out to the people who we disagree with to understand them, understand where they're coming from and try to find common ground to work together. Yeah, I think working together means that change can happen faster than being really polarised and obviously we need change to happen as fast as possible so any way that we can, happen, we can do it faster um, I think it's good to uh, yeah, focus on. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things that are required for climate transition, um, you know, across energy spheres and planning and um, economics and things like that. But you yourself are, are just a humble filmmaker. But um, what role do you think that the arts can have in these kind of big changes that we need to make? Yeah, I think the arts can can and must have a, a big part to play and, and will whether the arts likes it or not have a big part to play because so much of the arts is storytelling and so much of people's politics comes from the stories that they he hear and that they see and that they engage with. So a huge amount of the opposition to climate action is not from people looking at science or even looking at economics and looking at what the objective facts are. It's people engaging with narratives and narratives that they're told of, you know, um, the future of coal and the identity that they get from being a coal miner. So, you know, there's certain politicians within Australia who have been perpetuating these narratives, often for their own gains, like, like Matt Canavan is a really good example, who's actually, he's a really good storyteller of his own story of um, how, you know, coal can go for another hundred years, that kind of thing. And Sky News, uh, they're often, you know, Peter Credlin and, um, you know, Alan Jones are also really good storytellers and they tell their stories and they don't, um, you know, 
use the best, most up-to-date research for their stories. They just tell narratives, and if people engage with those narratives, that's how they, I guess, form their ideas. So I think filmmakers and storytellers and journalists and everyone who deals in communication and deals in stories also has an important, really important role to tell. If you want people to have more flexibility in their um, politics, then you need to be able to tell stories that that encourage empathy, that encourage people to see nuance and encourage people to see uh, stories from other people's perspectives that they wouldn't usually see. Okay, well, how can people watch Conversations with Coal Miners? So the easiest way to watch it is um, on YouTube because uh, it's on the Vice uh, News YouTube channel. So um, if you look up Vice Coal on YouTube, it'll most likely be the first thing that comes up. Yeah, and then if you're interested in it, share it around. Uh, I think there's a few people who are using it for kind of community screenings and stuff. Obviously, the more people can really engage with energy transition issues, climate issues, then I think the, the faster that as a community we can make it happen. So, um, Okay, thanks heaps, Kim. No worries. Thanks, Andy. That was Kim Newen there on the Paradigm Shift talking about his film Conversations with Coal Miners and you can watch it online on YouTube as he said, uh, search on the Vice Media channel for uh, coal miners and also you can of course listen to the Coalface podcast with Steph and Ellie who I spoke to earlier, that's on all your normal podcasting channels, Um, of course there's lots of great media independently made media out there you can listen to as well as you should keep listening to four triple z and keep supporting your local uh independent media station uh that is about all we have time for on the paradigm shift today i hope it's been uh, another informative one and an inspiring one of course we have a big task ahead of us if we are going to mitigate the damage of climate change and uh the election of a non-climate denying government is one step but there's a lot of work to do and it is going to require all of us and it is going to require i guess stepping out into the unknown um, for some of these coal mining regions that means new futures beyond what has been the traditional economy and lifestyle of of that region for some of us interested in trying to create change it means reaching out to people who are not like us and so people that live in these regions, people that are, um, are committed to mining for whatever reason and try to talk to them about the need for change and the possibilities of change. And ultimately that is um, what is required here. The Labor government managed to get in with a kind of small uh, target policy um, and with climate being one of those things, they had a less ambitious climate plan than last election. And that's all right, it got them electoral success, but ultimately climate change does require big targets, big changes, and we should be talking about the possibilities of uh, being a part of big changes that make the world better. And that will be the challenge ahead of us as the climate culture wars, I'm sure, are likely to continue for a little while yet in this country. But uh, let's keep at it, Um, and I'll be back next week on The Paradigm Shift with more interesting things to talk about. See you next week.